Last week we were looking at 1 Corinthians and the statement in chapter 6 that the Corinthians who had abandoned the dissolute lifestyle that was typical of the land of the country and particularly the city in which they dwelt having turned their back upon that they had turned to Christ and they had been transformed from sinners into saints and I use the word saint of course in the biblical sense of the word as meaning a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> but verse 11 tell, tells us how that transformation came about he describes the kind of lifestyle some of them were living beforehand and then in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 he says but but you were washed but you were sanctified but you were justified in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God and we had time only to deal with the first two of those stages if you like to call them that those three things together uh, plus other things perhaps are sometimes by theologians called the Ordo Salutis and that simply means an order of salvation and what it means is that certain events must happen in sequence in order to bring a sinner to be a saint now that sequence and I was keen to emphasize this last week that sequence is not a time sequence all these things can and I believe normally do occur simultaneously but it is a logical sequence meaning that the second one cannot happen without the first one and the third one cannot happen without the first two a logical sequence and that sequence as I say Paul spells out for us washed and we discovered in Titus that that meant washed by regeneration Titus talks about the washing of regeneration though Paul is not in, in 1 Corinthians 6 talking about baptism or any kind of ritual washing he's talking about regeneration and we looked at that and then we also looked at sanctification they were sanctified we noticed that these things were past events they were things that had already happened you were washed you were sanctified it's not some ongoing process that uh, Paul is talking about here he's talking about a past and accomplished event 
And then, of course, the third item in the uh, Ordo Salutis was justification. You were justified. Again, something that happened in the past. And we're going to spend today looking at that third event, third thing that must occur in a, an individual before they become a child of God. So we're looking first of all at the definition of justification. We will then move on to look at the means of justification and thirdly the fruit of justification. Now the definition of justification can be stated in this way. Justification is the making or declaring of a person righteous in the sight of God, declaring them righteous or making them righteous in both senses are used in scripture we shall see. So to be justified is to be made and or declared to be righteous in the sight of God. And it is at this point that many preachers and many commentators also invoke human law and law courts to help illustrate this process of justification. But I would advise against that because it's an analogy and analogies can seriously mislead. You see, there are three big differences between the way a human court of law operates and the way that heaven's court of law, if I can use that term, operates. And the first of those is that a human court of law cannot make a person innocent or guilty. They cannot make them innocent or guilty because long before the case comes to the court of law, uh, the event has occurred that's going to be investigated and that event either represented guilt or innocence on the part of the accused person. It's happened. The court of law can do nothing about the fact of what happened. All it can do is investigate that fact and by investigating the fact come to a decision and make a declaration that this person is or was innocent or guilty. But you see, that isn't true of the court of heaven. Because the court of heaven does actually make people guilty. <laughs> now, that may come as a little bit of a surprise to you, but, but let me turn to Romans chapter 11 
and really verse 32 I'm interested in, where we read, For God has committed them all, and he's talking about Jews and Gentiles here in the passage, God has committed them all to disobedience. God has made them. That word committed basically means to shut up, to imprison somebody, to shut them up. And God has done that. Some versions say he has concluded them all in disobedience. But it is basically means that God has made everybody, all human beings, disobedient. And how has he done that? Well, he's done that by setting the standard of obedience, the standard of righteousness, so high that none of us can meet it. Uh, we read in Romans 3, verse 23, of course, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, what is the glory of God? Because whatever it is, that is the standard that God has set. And all, everybody, Jew, Gentile, every member of the human race who ever lived, has fallen short of the standard that God has set. And that standard is described as the glory of God. And that can only mean one thing, can only mean the human life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived sinlessly when he walked this earth for 33 years. So God has set the standard. He says, okay, you are righteous if you live as Jesus Christ lived, without sin. And we all come short of it. So because God has set the standard so high, he has deliberately made us all sinners. That's something a human court of law cannot do, cannot make people guilty or innocent of any particular offence that has happened long ago, perhaps. Now, of course, at Romans 3.23, it followed up that statement that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God with further words being justified freely by his grace and so the purpose that God has concluded us all in sin in disobedience is simply that he might fulfill his love towards his creation in the elect by showing them mercy. In other words, he has ruled out the possibility that we can earn our salvation by works. And then, of course, the, the next thing that causes the analogy of the human court uh, to differ from the reality of the heavenly court is that the human court 
must necessarily begin with a presumption of innocence on the part of the accused person and that person remains innocent right up until the point at which he or she is declared guilty. But on the other hand, for the reason I've just stated, the court of heaven begins with the presumption of guilt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that leads on to the third difference between a human court and God's court. And that is that the human court doesn't deal in mercy. The human court has one prime responsibility and that is to find the offender or the, the accused person either innocent or guilty. On the other hand, the court of heaven deals exclusively in mercy. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely according to the mercy of God. It is the mercy of God that is operative as the primary criterion in the court of heaven. The primary method of dealing with the offender is to be merciful to that person. And so we are not going to be helped by analogies with human courts of law. So what are we going to be helped by if we want an analogy, if we want a picture, if you like, of the way the court of heaven works? Well, fortunately, we do have such a picture and we find it in the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament book, the last but, um, last but one book in the Old Testament. And I want to read a passage there from chapter 3 of Zechariah. And you'll notice that this is a vision that Zechariah has and it begins very much like a human court of law. There is a judge, there is a prosecuting attorney, and there is an accused person, just as we would have in a court of law in any era, any kind of, uh, of uh, legal jurisdiction. But now, just notice how suddenly this changes. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. <clears throat> and then he showed me, God showed me, or the angel showed me, in a vision clearly. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand 
to oppose him or accuse him. So there we have the judge, the angel of the Lord, which is uh, commonly a term applied to the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the triune God. There is the judge, there is the prosecuting attorney, and there is a prisoner, somebody charged. And we're told in verse 3 that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, Joshua was the high priest, and as such, he was the representative of his people. He wasn't just standing there as an individual, but he was standing there as a representative individual. And secondly, the high priest, and under the Mosaic Covenant, was always beautifully dressed. He was always, had to be constantly putting on a clean garment. Whenever he went into the sanctuary, he, he had to wash himself and put on a clean garment, especially on the Day of Atonement. And he was beautifully dressed with golden threads woven into the fabric, with bells around the hem of his garment, with beautiful crown upon his head, turban, with jewels set into a breastplate and upon his shoulders and on each jewel there was inscribed the name of one of the tribes of Israel. But here in the vision he's dressed in filthy garments, filthy, absolutely filthy garments. And we shall see in a moment that the filthy garments represented the sin of Israel. So let's read on. And the Lord said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, and he points at Joshua the high priest in his filthy garments, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, we don't use that word brand in that sense today very often, but it, it meant simply a half-burned stick that you could pull out of the fire and half of it was burnt or burning so that it could be used as a light uh, but the other half was still unburnt. So Joshua, he says, representing Jerusalem, was like a brand plucked from the fire, saved from complete destruction. And indeed, having been plucked, could be used as a light for others. Is not this a brand plucked from the burning? From the fire. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, people around in the court, as it were, saying, 
take away the filthy garments from him and to him see I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes so the filthy garments were representative of the iniquity of the nation as well as Joshua himself and he says I'm going to take those away I'm going to take away your iniquity and I'm going to replace your iniquity by a rich robe and I and Zechariah gets into the act at this point in verse 5 and I said let them put a clean turban on his head so they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by well there you see is, is, is a, a brilliant analogy of the way the court of heaven operates but there's one thing missing from this account which is provided by New Testament revelation the one thing missing is that we are not told here that the rich robe which replaces his filthy garments in other words the righteousness which replaces his his sin actually belongs to another high priest even Jesus Christ the righteous for of course we are told in the New Testament in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 we are told that when Christ died upon the cross uh, God made him to be sin for us the one who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him so those rich garments which were put around the so shoulders of Joshua the high priest in the Zechariah passage those rich garments belong to somebody else they belong to Christ and of course I say that is made clear in the New Testament I should perhaps add that it is also made clear in Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament where we are told that all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all the substitutional death of Christ is a penal substitution he bears our sins he takes our filthy garments upon himself in order to be able to transfer his perfect garment his robe of righteousness to us and that is the glory of what happens when we become justified in the sight of God
And I would point out, if we just turn back for a moment to Romans 11, I would just point out that this is not some theological dialogue. Let me read again from verse 32. For God has committed them, shut them up all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In other words, this contemplation of the work, the atoning and justifying work of Jesus Christ upon the cross brings forth from the Apostle Paul a doxology. He doesn't simply say, well, that's, that's a nice piece of doctrine, remember it, think about it. He goes much further than that. He says, this gives rise in my heart and should give rise in your heart to praise and worship to God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We, we would never have imagined that God would act in this manner in order to redeem sinners and make them saints. Well now, I must move on. I said, first of all, we were going to look at the definition of justification and now we must look at the means of justification. For there is perhaps um, a little difficulty here. In, Ro in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we are told Paul is reviewing what he has been teaching about justification. And he says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Let's look at that at the end of the message a little more. Oh, so we're justified by faith. Uh, oh no, says, says Romans 3. Uh, we're justified by grace. We're justified by grace. And Ephesians 2, we're justified by grace. Now grace is God's free, unmerited mercy towards human sinners. We are, we are enemies of God, says the scriptures, Romans 5, later on, says while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We were enemies, but we've been made friends. And how has that happened? Well, it's, it's by grace, says Romans 11. It's by grace. I know, says Romans 5, it's, it's by faith. In fact, there is yet a ver another version of the usage of the word justification because James says we are justified by works. Um, I'll deal with that very briefly immediately because when James makes that statement, he is talking about the reality of faith that people claim to have. 
he says, you've got to recognise, in James chapter 2, you've got to recognise that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You may have noticed in the passage from Titus that we read, it says right at the end of the statement that uh, it was not by works of righteousness that we uh, have done, but by his grace that we have been saved. By his mercy we have been saved. Through the washing of regeneration, through the renewing of the Holy Spirit, that we might be justified. And then immediately he goes on to say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all men to be believed, that we should be careful uh, to continue in good works. You see, faith, the faith that justifies, in other words, will produce good works. And we see that spelled out in great detail in Ephesians chapter 2. And turn to that. The first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 I often remind you of because <coughs> it's such a, 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 a tremendous and clear statement of what salvation is all about. He starts off, of course, saying that we were, like everybody else, sinners in the sight of God. You once were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan that is, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our manner of life in times past, fulfilling the desires the evil desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even like everybody else. But God, but God, even when we were dead in trespasses, brought us to life together with Christ, and raised us up together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and made us sit in heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might show forth the riches of his grace to us. And so he goes on. And then in verse 8 he says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God before prepared that we should do them. Now you see what he's saying. Are we justified by grace or are we justified by faith? Well, he's saying both. He's saying we are saved by grace through faith. And it's faith that puts the grace of God to work in the believer. And you say, well, is not faith a work if it's, if it's because we believe 
that we are justified, we are justified by faith, then surely that is a work, something we do. But it's not a work, because a work, as it is used in that context, means something we do without the aid of God, something done in the power of human nature. That's a work. But you see, this faith is not a work. It is a gift of God. Now, I don't know that any of you are familiar with the, the Greek behind that, but it has been pointed out that Paul cannot be referring to faith when he says it is a gift of God, because the pronoun and the noun are different genders. But it can't be referring to grace either, because the same applies there. So the only thing it can apply to is the salvation. The salvation we are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's the totality of the salvation that is the gift of God. But clearly, every component of the grace of God, as it is worked out, the grace itself, the faith by which it is put into operation in the human heart, they are all part and parcel of something that is in its totality, the gift of God. Because it goes on immediately to say, not of works, you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you see, when James talks about being justified by works, all he is saying is this, if the faith you profess does not produce good works, it's not real faith. Faith without works is dead. And so he goes on to say, you are justified by faith and works. And that simply means you are justified by a faith which produces works. So then that helps us clarify the means of justification. How are we justified? We are justified by grace. We are justified by faith because the grace produces the faith, both being the unmerited giving of God to sinners like ourselves. And then finally, the fruit of justification. We've looked at the definition of justification, we've looked at the means of justification, and now the fruit. And in one sense, it's really a totally impossible subject to cover because the fruit of justification is everything the faithful Christian does in thought, word, and deed throughout his or her life. So what I'm going to do is take us back just to Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> and we're going to look at these first five verses, and we're going to see the fruit of justification. In other words, the practical results 
the practical benefits that come to those who are justified. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have, first thing, peace with God. Now, in the first instance, that peace refers to a cessation of hostilities. In verse 10, I mentioned this earlier, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were enemies. We were at war with God. We were disobedient to God. And that goes not just for atheists and people who follow other religions. It can go for people who profess to be Christians, that they haven't been justified. You may remember that just before the Lord Jesus Christ finishes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, just before he tells the story of the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock, immediately before that he says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, and he's talking about the day of judgment, when many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? And done many wonderful works in your name? And I will reply, says the Lord Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. Here were professing Christians who were very active, very busy in their apparent Christian faith, but they weren't justified. They had not received the mercy of God. They had not known what it was to be the subjects of grace. They had not received the gift of faith. And yet they were professing Christians. They were still enemies of God in the midst of his church. And I fear there are thousands of people today who fall into that category. But no, those who are justified have peace with God. There are no further hostilities. And because the hostilities have ceased, we not only have peace with God, but we have the peace of God. That is a consequence of the hostilities having ceased. <coughs> we haven't just signed a peace agreement with God and walked away. No, no, we have the peace of God in our hearts. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, doesn't he? Be anxious for nothing. The Lord is at hand, near, nearby. Uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds 
through Jesus Christ. That peace of God which is inexplicable. You shouldn't have peace in these circumstances. You shouldn't have peace with this illness. You shouldn't have peace as you're facing some, some great tragedy or some, some great challenge. You shouldn't have peace. It's not a time for peace. Peace of God is beyond our understanding. You can have peace during those times. And just come back to that in a moment. Having been justified by God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we also have, and here's the second thing, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access into grace. You'll remember the verse in Hebrews chapter 4 which says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. It's a throne, a place of authority, a place of power. Let us come boldly to the throne of God that we might receive what? Mercy and grace to help in time of need. We have access, wonderful access to the very throne room of God. And in that grace, we stand. It gives us stability. We are not going to be moved by the circumstances and difficulties of this life. Next, we have joy. We stand and rejoice. Next, we have hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations. Now, tribulation, the real thing, was a particularly nasty, fatal torture practiced by the Roman army on their prisoners. This, of course, is spiritual tribulation he's talking about now. But the word has been borrowed to emphasize the severity of the troubles through which Christians are sometimes called to come. But he says, we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And an illustration occurred to me as I was thinking about this. Sometimes in the depth of winter, uh, a river freezes over and you could walk across that river on the ice but underneath the ice the river continues to flow the river continues to support life the river's not visible but it's flowing just as it was before and you know sometimes when we experience tribulation when, as it were, the river of life for us temporarily freezes over, brings life to a complete standstill. We feel helpless. We feel it Im impossible to, to handle this situation. And, as it were, our life goes into deep freeze. But we glory in tribulation. Why? Because the river of life, the river of grace, continues to flow underneath 
the ice. Well, uh, it helped me to think of that illustration. I hope perhaps it might help you. And he goes on, of course, as he lists these benefits, these fruits of justification, he goes on to say, we have hope. We have hope. And Christian hope is future expectation. Christian hope is not, I hope it will, but it may not. Christian hope is expectation. And he says we have hope because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We have the love of God. Uh, the last fruit that I'm going to mention is the love of God poured out into our hearts. Now primarily that means God's love towards us. We become conscious of it. Our hearts are warmed by it. Our souls are encouraged by it. We are given hope by it because this love of God, which is an experienced thing, it is actually an experienced emotion. It's something we really do feel. The love of God is warming our hearts. But it also means that we have the capacity to love God back. And so the love of God gives rise to a love for God. And our love is, as it were, returned. It's reflected, bounces back, if you like, toward God himself. And we fulfill that great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind and strength. And the Lord Jesus continued, your neighbour as yourself. To love the Lord your God and your neighbour as yourself. And that's the third aspect of the love of God. First of all, it's the, uh, uh, the hope that is given to us and the happiness that is given to us by our experience of God's love toward us. Secondly, there is the fact that that germinates and produces a reflection of love so that we love God back. We love him. John says in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 19, I think it is, he says we love God because he first loved us. You see that reflection. But then there is a third aspect, and that is the love of God is so poured out into our hearts, is so generously given through the Holy Spirit that it overflows to others. You shall love the Lord your God and your neighbour as yourself. Is the love of God doing that for me? Is it doing it for you? Is the love that God has shown you producing a love of God? And is it overflowing to your neighbour so that you love your neighbour as yourself? By this, the Lord Jesus says, All men shall know that you are my disciples because you love 
one another. That was his new commandment. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. Well, I think that's a very good place to end our consideration of the fruits of justification.